Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to the New Books Network. All right, hello, and welcome back to New Books and Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Kelly Spivey, the host of the channel, and today we're going to be talking to Ben Wargaft and Mary Corky White about their book, Ways of Eating, Exploring Food Through History and Culture. Ben is a writer and historian, and Mary is a professor of anthropology at Boston University. And as it happens, they are also related. <laughs> so thanks so much for both of you being here today. I'm obviously really excited to talk about this book. Thanks Thank so much you for, having, much us for having us. Um, so, I, you know, we started talking before we were recording a little bit about the book, and I want to find out before we dive back in, what brought each of you to this topic and what made you want to write this book individually, but also choose to do it together? Yeah, ben. so um, <laughs> I think that the, the, the reason that, you, we write collaboratively. The reason you should write collaboratively is to do something you couldn't do alone. And um, many years ago now, it was actually in the spring of 2010 or so, um, uh, Corky was approached by a publisher um, that was hoping for a short introduction to world food history, really short, like 160 pages for everything that has ever happened. And in now, um, uh, Mom, you invited me to join you to write that book, and that project fell apart in various ways. But out of the ashes, Phoenix-like, arose the possibility of doing something new together. And um, I think that we 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 both liked what we had been working on, but thought that the format of a of a, a short book that would just contain everything was self-defeating and silly it was just something that couldn't be done well and um what we felt that we could contribute that would create a book that was um unusual and there are a lot of books that try to be short introductions to world food history and there are even some introductions to food anthropology but we wanted a book that would um emphasize different things and emphasize the intellectual tools that had been really important in our respective careers. Mom, would you like to amplify on any of that? I, I, I agree uh, that those were the, the, the starting, you know, the, the starting guns. Um, what, what was also interesting to me was to make you know finally make food studies something that people really talked about and of course they do now um un, unlike the eras in which i wrote about food when i was much younger when food was not really to be discussed in polite society unless you were a dietitian or a nutritionist or or somebody was going to solve world hunger 
Um, but the pleasures of food, the experiences of food were what I hoped we could offer um, because I think it's, I mean, I like to think the title really is ways of thinking about food. Um, so you inspire in others the ability to kind of take off in their minds from their own experiences into, you know, where'd this come from? Why am I eating this? And why didn't my grandmother eat this? Um, and yeah, and the title, I'm glad you brought that up as I immediately recognized it as an echo of ways of seeing, um, which I'm assuming influ influenced you pretty heavily in the writing of the yeah. book. So the, the, the reference to John Berger's 1972 BBC television series and short book is clear and uh, matters a lot to me. Um, I'm glad that the title isn't Ways of Thinking About Food because the callback to John Berger is really important. Um, the, um, but obviously it is Ways of Thinking About Food, much as John Berger's whole project there was ways of thinking about art. And in, in that case, specifically, ways of thinking about this particular tradition of fine art, European portraiture, that people hadn't associated with a set of social issues like class and gender. And um, Berger's book and series are really deeply influenced by uh, a particular essay by the German Jewish critic Walter Benjamin, his uh, work of art in the age of its mechanical reproducibility. And Berger's really interested in showing his viewer or reader that um, things like um, portrait paintings can in fact be indexes of social relations at the time of their production and even indexes of class relations. And although our book doesn't quite do for food that exactly, that's very much a point of departure for us to show that um, dishes are uh, in a way indexes of the social world that produced them. And in some ways um, indices of the minds, social lives, and sense of cultural significance of the people who cook them. I, I agree. I think that all of that is in there, and John Berger, of course, but I also think uh, we also tried to take it, you know, I'm an anthropologist, into uh, a, a much more kind of open, yes, uh, yes, economic, yes, historical, yes, political, uh, way of thinking about that thing that's on your plate or in your mouth. And I do think that we did that. We, you know, the book is, is a combination of um, chapters that are historically based, but also get into some depth on a few places and times, uh, in, interspersed with vignettes, we call them vignettes, which are actually experiences um, and and quite personally drawn, I think, either ones that I've had or that Ben has had or that we've had together. And those are kind of hooks for the reader into the next chapter, you know, that saying, so this is an experience that made us think this or that, you know, uh, there, there might be a historical moment implied in the vignette that, you know, postdates the experiences that we talk about in the chapter, but that is completely relevant to it. So I think the structure of the book also has this kind of um, referential um, and, and very personal. I mean, I think one of the great things about my experience of anthropology is that um, it, it has finally come of age in which you can talk about I. You can use the word I. I was there, or I was dropped off in this boat, and you know. <laughs> um, so I think I think you know the combination works very well. I mean, I I, I actually want to ask you a question here, Mom, about this because one of the things that's come to light as we've done various interviews and talks, and we've sort of had lots of discussions after writing the book discussions that showed that writing a book together was more like the start of a conversation than the end of one. Mm -hmm. It was more like um, I got to see the significance of food in your intellectual life 
And it seemed like you were telling me that because food was something that your doctoral advisors had told you had to be kept off a CV, you had to sort of not talk about food, um, that in a way you've been looking at recapturing the role of food in your intellectual life and you want to tell other people that food is a legitimate basis for an intellectual life. Yes, I think that's right. I do have a, uh, a historical kind of, I don't know, resentment, you might call it, that I want to make up for. And But it, it's actually so um, long ago that food was not to be spoken of in, in these ways uh, that it wouldn't exactly be relevant for today's audience. What do you mean food wasn't, you know, something to talk about? I, I, don't, I don't know. I feel like I, you know, I'm, I'm, I've only been in the field of food studies about 10 years or so at this point, but it's still very like, it feels very rigid. And that's one thing that I liked about the book is that it does have this like almost lyrical rhythm to it that just kind of weaves you through the history in such a way that you can see that it can't be one thing it can't be authentic it's a bunch of different things happening at once inter independently interdependently and we talk about intersectionality but this is like a yes and to that yeah. idea yeah I'm, I'm interested that you said that food um, sometimes feels very food studies feels rigid I also feel that it's often um, defensive um, that it it it's a little apologetic and a little bit, uh, you know, assertive at the same time. And, um, you know, I think it's true. Um, I still, every once in a while, I was at an event um, where there were little groups of people and I went and introduced myself to a little group of people who didn't know me particularly, but they were nice. And they said, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a food anthropologist. And one of them said, oh, what fun. And another one said, um, oh, but how come you're not really fat? And a third one said, you must be a really good cook. And the fourth one said, what a scam. <laughs> yeah. Um, Kelly, can I ask, do you, do you when a moment ago, you said that, that there was something in food studies, and I don't want to mischaracterize you, you said it was something rigid in it. Can you say mm. more more about what you mean? Um, yes, I can try. Um, what I kind of came across, so I, I come to food studies through a totally different discipline, uh, which is Southern studies, which is interdisciplinary already. So there's really no form per se um, beyond a region. So for me, I was able to make it a food studies degree more or less just a regional yeah. you know regionally based one um and i think the rigidity for me came in whenever i tried to write about food it was like okay well there's all these historical influences i can write about it from a historical perspective i can write about it from a sociological perspective i can write about there were all these already siloed off perspectives that i felt i had to use mm. and there wasn't really a good way, at least for me at the time, to kind of weave those all in together in I, in a seamless fashion. <laughs> I think I, I think I understand. And I, I think that there has been this odd effect in food studies because it's relatively new. It's only a few decades old um, to the, the effort to define oneself, to to patrol to do various forms of gatekeeping and to say who can talk about what is actually rather fierce. So it's funny because um, it's simultaneously in this place where it could be ultimately really welcoming and big tent. And it often ends up feeling like a network of cliques instead. And um, I actually don't think I'm part of food studies and I don't think that my mom is either exactly. I think that we both look in from other places and, um, We've certainly contributed to what people call food studies quite a bit, but I'm, I actually feel quite happy to not have it as my central home, um, precisely because um, 
I like writing about food. I like reading other people's writing about food. I like food work. I like cooking. I like engaging in food-related ethnography, which I did for a prior book project of my own. Um, I like all of these things, but um, I don't feel, and I, I definitely felt this as I was as I was writing uh, Ways of Eating. I don't feel like I have any obligation to cite a given group of scholars who have food studies badges, and I feel like I have the freedom to choose the intellectual tools that suit the problem at hand, whether the problem is understanding like the presence of rustic and um, elaborate dishes at Roman ancient Roman tables, if that's the, the task, like if that's the interpretive task, I have a set of tools I want to use. If the task is to understand something about the effect of post-modernity on restaurant menus in the 1990s, I have other tools I want to use. And they may not be tools that are branded food studies TM tools. And I'm quite happy about that. Um, I'd like to follow on that uh, because um, I want to say that I've benefited personally from people in so-called food studies who identify themselves in food studies. Um, and um, we actually have a whole bunch of people we're indebted to in the field who've, whose work, like Rachel Loudon, um, who are just you know wonderful scholars. And I, I'm not sure how each of them identifies him or herself, but I feel like in some sense, we do belong, but at, you know, maybe a different part of the circles, the concentric circles. That, <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean yeah. Rachel, I mean, if I can speak to that, I don't mean to preempt Kelly. Rachel Loudon's a historian of science. That's what her doctorate's in. Yeah, and exactly. A, a lot of, a, a, a lot of my favorite writers in broadly writing about food, whether we call it food studies or something else, have their PhDs in something utterly different. And you know? who don't have PhDs, some of them. For yes. example, you know, one of my favorite writers of all time is Calvin Trillin. And if, I mean, there are people out there who are truly inspiring and who don't have, you know, credentials in academe. Um, and, you know, I, I also feel the freedom to use all of these people and sources uh, because I don't feel like maybe I maybe it's just because I'm old. I feel like it isn't necessary to be part of a school of or well, yeah, you're going to say it, something. Well, no, if I can if I can just speak this, uh, Kelly. I don't know if you've been to the Oxford Food and Cookery Symposium, Oxford UK rather than Oxford. So um, so so the what's interesting. The reason I mention it is that. It, it speaks to what I think my mom is talking about. It, it is a annual food conference that involves a lot of people who are definitely part of the food studies universe and a lot of people who are professional cooks and restaurateurs and a lot of people who are simply really, really nerdy about food. And I don't mean like ordinary, I'm a home cook, I'm really nerdy about food. I've watched all the Kenji Lopez alt videos, but like, um, me sitting at a table with these people and one of them is is, is saying to me and let's let he has an australian accent he says ben someday you might be stranded in the cave and if you're stranded in a cave you need to be able to, to eat the bats but if you eat the bats in the cave to survive you have to remove the poison gland in the armpit <laughs> so he's telling me about how to remove the point i Accent is terrible, but if he's telling me about how, how I remove the poison gland in the bat's armpit. And I'm like, okay, this is a different level of thing here. Yes, but how much we get from them. I mean, th that place is full of these obsessive eccentrics who are as English eccentrics often are. And they have this, this passion for something. I sat next to a woman at the Oxford Symposium who said, I know every plant in England. And she's the ultimate botanical <laughs> genius. And and she knows very little else, but she knows that. 
and but and, these aren't people with PhDs. So th these aren't people who are like, um, these aren't people who are trying to sell their wares in the academic marketplace on the basis of it being food studies. Yeah, yeah, that's right. They they uh, un unlike me, they were not told uh, to take all of that off your resume or you'd never get an academic job. Yeah, that is what happened. I was. Uh, coming through i had been a um just to give you one brief minute um i had been a caterer at a place at harvard called the center for european studies because no center for west european studies because the wall had not come down so it's just west european so all these people i was cooking for every week at luncheon for 50 i really was terrified i had never cooked before and so i my strategy was simply to cook things they might not have eaten or might not have known much about, so not from Western Europe. So I cooked from all over the rest of the world just to avoid their um, expertise. Then, you know, two cookbooks happened. I kept, kept being a food journalist until I entered graduate school, at which point this happened that those cookbooks were a, a mark against me. Um, so I didn't I didn't mean to go back that far into history, but um, you know it's very refreshing to go to someplace like this Oxford Symposium, where every kind of expertise had its place and value, and people were not strung along a ladder of academic status, um, even though you know they might be in their the rest of their lives, but at least at the symposium we were all created equal. That sounds like, um, I don't know, equal parts uh, heaven and hell. I'm not sure. Right. <laughs> like um, a rabbit yeah. hole that I may never come out of. <laughs> yeah, no, well, that's, yeah, but that's, I mean, there is something right. about that's it right. that, you know, what happens at Oxford stays at Oxford. <laughs> so <laughs> you have these amazing meals with people and drink too much and, and um, share stories and uh, you leave and resume your normal life. And it's, it's still wonderful. We, you've both already brought up a couple of things that uh, have parallels in the book. I think um, you probably should listen to how to get rid of fat poison glands before you eat them. I believe in the book, there are several examples of people not listening to indigenous or native peoples and it really costing them. Um, and, and, and I think overall, uh, you know, talking about your cookbooks, it just speaks to where food studies is today versus where it began. About the cookbooks, you mean? Yeah, like just just that now I don't think that that would be seen as such a, uh, I mean, uh, a cookbook is a value in and of itself as, as, as an well, archival. Yes, but you know, there were still people when, when I came up for tenure, who um, said I was too much in the world of practice. Yeah. I, and I tr truly probably am less theoretical than most people in my field, but I, that doesn't mean I'm only in the world of practice. I'm in the world of different sorts of analysis, but I, um, I find that um, nowadays, of course, people love hearing about the cookbooks. You know, it's, it's yeah. not exactly a plus because it doesn't count towards the on the academic. But, you know, by the time I got tenure, I had put all of that back on my resume. So yeah. I mean, one one informs the other. You really can't split those apart. Right. But but I, I do think there's an interesting question in all of this. Um, and it's come out in some of our post publication conversations, Mom which is the question of what are the potential objects of knowledge in food studies? When we're trying to understand food anthropologically or historically, say, what is it that we're trying to know? Obviously, it's a bunch of different potential things. There are lots of different kinds of historical and anthropological questions that one asks. Mm -hmm. But what's the relationship between practice and the knowledge that the studies produce. And, and you and I, we tried to write an essay about this that kind of 
we haven't, the, the generous way to say it is that we haven't completed it because we weren't quite able to agree. But the, the, it, it's a complicated problem, the problem of what practice in food teaches us that is relevant for the production of knowledge in food studies. Well, one of the wonderful examples of that, Ben, um, was our only real argument, which was whether or not to include recipes in the book. And the idea that uh, that recipes might be um, too hands-on, too too distant from the the ways of thinking. Um, well, can, can I? I don't mean to interrupt, Mom, but but Kelly, you've read the book and and you know that there aren't recipes in it. Um, there and... are recipes in it, though. If you look closely enough, there's a few <laughs> here and there that are slipped in there. Say, say more. Say more. <laughs> there's, um, oh God, of course I can't find it now. But you know, when you put uh, um, excerpts from uh, old English poems or the Canterbury Tales or any of that, like to a point, that is a recipe that is telling you how they ate in that time. Sure. It's it's not, you know, if you, I mean, if you look at most recipes and cookbooks when they started anyway, there's so little instruction. It's just a list of ingredients. And, and not so, even measurements. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, so I, almost anything that talks about food could be construed as a recipe of some kind, I think. That's a broad and generous idea of recipes. <laughs> it is. <laughs> because- I- uh, and when, you know, when I think I was on the side of actually including them as, and maybe it's part of my own history that I wanted them in there and saying, these two are important, you know, but in fact, um, they could be also a distraction. Um, they could, um, and you know, I I used to love those books like, Nora Ephron's book, Heartburn, where she has a recipe in every chapter as she's breaking up with her husband and every recipe has got all this emotional force in it. Um, I, I, I enjoy all that. Not that I ever, ever cooked from one of those books. No, I didn't. But I read them as an involvement in that person's storyline. So, so there's I, a kind of, there's a kind of a, if you if you'll allow me, there's a kind of aesthetic effect that the recipe provides, yeah. Yeah. and maybe imaginative. And Kelly, going back to what you were saying, um, it can simply be informative of what people thought of as a way to produce a dish. Well, that's right. And the other part of that is in the instructions themselves, the measurements, the kinds of ingredients. There are storylines about you know if you take, uh, oh, I guess, Laura Shapiro's book on perfection salad, and you see how important measurement became to women in the domestic science movement. And, but then you, as you were saying, Kelly, that the early recipes were not even a pinch of this or a pinch of that. It was more like some. Yeah. Um, so you learn something from the actual recipe as it's written about an era or a place or a social class. Um, there's, there's, there is a lot to read into a recipe. And and I, for the record, I was against including recipes in the book because I thought people wouldn't take us seriously. And um, uh, I, I, I absolutely was the representative of an old prejudice, which I had been worrying about. It wasn't that I actually thought you don't learn things from recipes, but that <laughs> I, I was worried people would treat the book um, not as what we intended it to be, but as something else. And as it, as it turned out, the publisher themselves decided that there wouldn't be recipes. Um, and they, they thought that too many books were doing that. And I'm, I'm not sure what their reasoning was, but we don't have them. Um, well, that was exactly that was exactly their reasoning. And I, I mean, whether they were right or not, it, we, can, we can debate yeah, I mean, I th- I think it makes more sense uh, as as you were saying, Corky, about it being a distraction, because if uh, aside from just it being a technical way to do something, it's like a totally different story that you're throwing in there that can disrupt that flow. If we had a section on, and it would have been interesting. There's so many things we didn't do, but um, on the 
the history of writing recipes um, and what what is included, what isn't, what are the presumed um, skills of the reader, all that sort of thing. Uh, then there would make sense we could sort of deconstruct a recipe and take it apart and listen to it uh, and uh, understand it in a different way for the reader. But that isn't what we chose to do, I guess. Yeah, I mean, can can y'all talk about what you did choose to include? I mean, I, I know you, you were talking about this 160-page world history that this kind of <laughs> emanated from, but I, it's quite a lot to to try to do in in a relatively few amount of pages. Well, even but, in what we've done, there's a lot. Well, and, that's well, what I'm saying. You know, a couple you, hundred pages is just such you, a... The emissions, the emissions are really staggering. So, Kelly, just thinking about your expertise, the American South is hardly there. Aust uh, Australasia is completely absent. Africa is minimally present. Latin America is minimally present. So in a sense, the book shows uh, our own intellectual backgrounds and geographic preoccupations variously with East Asia and Europe and North America. And um, I think that in a way that's as it, sh I, I regret the absence of some of these other geographies, but in a way I think it's as it should be because I think we can only write our own book um, and that it, it's better to have a book that is revealing of us and of our lenses than for us to pretend to be able to cover areas about which we have no expertise. That was exactly right. That that's the basis for our choices, rather than a political or uh, you know representational reason for including more or different ones. And you know my expertise is in Japan um, and a little bit of the rest of East Asia. Um, so that's why we have something on Cambodia. That's why we have a fair bit on Japan. Um, and um, yeah, I think um, it, it, it felt more honest, actually, to include yeah. what we know. And, but going, going back to the chronological for a moment, um, I had a lot to do with selecting what historical episodes would build up towards the present in the book. And I was conscious of selecting um, what I thought was most critical for generating the modern pantry, uh, pantry in the sense of the array of things that we cook with, um, the array of animal and plant species, techniques, technologies that we use to cook with now. So the book moves from the origins of agriculture through the Colombian exchange, the industrial revolution, the slave trade, it moves through all of these things um, up to the development of modern shipping networks and refrigeration to get to the supermarket and the world we have today looking at the next few decades of climate change and their likely effects on agriculture. So um, that's how the book gets its sort of chronological shape. Um, obviously, there's um, a million things we could talk about and don't, but I wanted a reader relatively unfamiliar with food history to be able to get what I think are the crucial turning points. And I wanted engagement. I wanted the reader to feel they could travel down some of these paths, uh, whether in imagination or in reality. And that, um, so, you know, I think... Because um, food was a professional engagement for me, um, I have tried to get a degree of engagement in, in the imagination of the reader that is practical, that that does engage them in the food itself. Um, I I'm not sure it does that, but that was the attempt anyway, even without those recipes. So. I think it does. I mean, I just looking at it from my own perspective of Southern studies, I had never really seen anybody approach the idea of authenticity, which you do in, in the vignette about Panama. That was the best thing I've ever heard is that authenticity is just 
an anxiety about being copied. Like it, it has nothing to do with the real yeah. thing or not. It was such like a freeing thing to read. Well, my students are uh, my in my food anthropology course are are always um, have this culinary anxiety as you described it. You know they, and especially about the more distant or exotic exotic quote unquote foods like Japanese food. So where where in Boston they will ask me, do I get authentic Japanese food? And then I scratch my chin and I say, well, what do you? <laughs> and and I annoy them enormously by saying, what do you mean by authenticity? Why do we ask that? You know, and I take them into that little exercise of thinking, what where is the value that and what does it mean that we're looking for that uh, in this this idea of authenticity? So, you know, I have a lot of anthropological colleagues who are looking at authenticity in various contexts, not just food, of course, but in rituals, in, in you know, many different aspects of a cultural life, which also, you know, there's another word that we take on, which is culture itself, you know, that idea that there is something that is culture, but it isn't permanent. It doesn't sit there like something called tradition and demand attention for this once and always thing, because culture changes all the time. And I think that when you're coming into studying anthropology, these should be some of the first big surprises that um, your professor might ask you a question about your use of the word authenticity, that when you use the word culture to explain people's behavior, as in phrases like, well, this is part of our workplace culture, right? This is part of our, <laughs> this is a culture of how we do things. These actually, yeah, no, I know. Yeah, you know. My mother is now holding up her fingers in the no, stop sign. And no, no, I mean, this is this is right. I mean, that hopefully, and this is true in both cultural history and in cultural anthropology, culture should be the beginning and not the end of a conversation. So not the final explanation for human behavior, but rather the beginning of a set of questions that will help us to understand uh, why people act and believe as they do. And um, often within what we call, quote unquote, a culture, there are various systems and rules um, that can help us to understand why people treat one another as they do in certain situations and believe certain things in certain situations. And in, in, in the vignette Authenticity in Panama, we're really trying to think about um, the fact that, and to my mind, the authenticity of a food experience just immediately seems philosophically kind of unpromising. Like what the hell is authenticity and why do people impute it to things? Uh, more and, than and yeah, more than problematic. Well, then it goes on. It becomes a social thing, right? It's not just problematic. It's But authenticity is something people keep going back for more. Like they want more authenticity. I keep saying, no, this doesn't exist. And they keep wanting it anyway. What is the deep need under that? That's, right, exactly. You know, it, it and I think it is a, ve a very great anxiety and insecurity that makes people search for that. And my students, I, I often say something rather snarky when it comes right down to authenticity, you know, or, you know, if somebody, I say, look, here's one rule that is separate from my general feelings about authenticity. If your grandmother says her matzo ball soup is the authentic one, it is because you never question your grandmother. But then, you know, then I, of course I go into how you should always question other claims of authenticity. Um, is, it, is the rule that you, you question other people's grandmothers but not your own? Is that the sovereign yeah, well, rule Well, right, or other people <laughs> about their grandmothers. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I think that we, you, at this point in the conversation, I usually come out on the side of questioning all grandparents and and you know <laughs> reject you know <laughs> tradition and authority are are to be are to be asked questions about. Um, but um, if authenticity and culture are two of our big preoccupations in the book, I think that one of the 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 moves that we always make is perhaps predictably 
to try to show that the reasons people ask these questions are what's interesting, not the answer, not not the specific answer to is this authentic or is this part but of a culture or not person, part of a culture. Right. Yeah. Why that person is asking. And and you know, I, I take my students to various neighborhoods in Boston. One is the Italian Italian quote unquote North End. And in the North End, there are these restaurants that say, here you can get authentic Italian food. And I say, oh, that's very useful marketing. But what does it really mean, especially in a restaurant that's been there for maybe 80 years and gradually changing because of the availability, availability or lack of availability of ingredients and the distance from their home place in Italy where somebody would be possibly making it completely differently now. So it keeps coming up, but you keep having to tack it down. That's all, I think. But I think you do that in the book where, you know, as you're talking about the the authentic Italian, I'm like, there is there is no authentic Italian. Right. Because You know, it, like it depends on in history where you are. It depends on just so many other things. And uh, yeah, like I, I think that's so freeing but there's right. also well, that's a good point that it's liberating that well, you know, it's, that you can say well actually italy was all these different places it the regionality is much more important than something national and so you can you can play that line or or many others or that uh, the people who came to the north end were actually extremely poor and they couldn't afford what was seen as italian in any case they had look la cucina povera, the poor people's food, which was of course regional as well. We've been talking about these recurring questions about authenticity, and I, I just wanted to, to to comment that I've been watching. I just finished the second season of High on the Hog, the Netflix documentary hosted by uh, Stephen Satterfield, based on the work of Black food historian Jessica Harris, and it, it's about. Black American food history. And it is, there's this thread in it of people, um, chefs and entrepreneurs mainly, feeling empowered by the idea of the authentic, feeling empowered by the idea of the real. And um, this is like, this is, this is, this is, this is a, something that is important to them and that I would not want to contest. So in in sounding my own call for people to think critically about the category of authenticity, I also want to take seriously the fact that for many people, the concept has a moral force in their own lives and it has a psychological and perhaps political significance for them. As well that, as an economic one as especially an economic one, because one of the themes in the in the authenticity conversation has been often about white chefs claiming other people's food and making money off of it. Um, so I don't want to I don't want to take on the role of being the person who walks around saying authenticity is a meaningless concept, because obviously it is meaningful to people. Yeah. It just yeah. happens that I don't think it has a uh, a, fil a kind of a quality of philosophical stability. I also I, think I, not have a clear definition that can be stand for all all uses. Yeah, I think it's very uh, context dependent and where it's being used, why it's being used. There, it's not just a word to throw out there and have one definition for. Right. I think um, this. It just came up recently. Um, my class was talking about Thanksgiving and uh, th that as a national uh, menu, you know, uh, that it was kind of required to be on the table. Otherwise, you weren't having Thanksgiving. And, you know, and as you know, Kelly, I mean, the, the southern stuffings or dressings for the turkey are very different and they might be different town by town and person by person. And so there are these arenas of flexibility within this thing that seems to be stipulated uh, or seems to have been created 
by the pilgrims in 1620, when of course it was created by Abraham Lincoln in the Civil War. So, you know, it's, um, it's a wonderful example of many things coming together with seemingly political or regional importance. And it, it's kind of, we didn't do quite enough on Thanksgiving, but it's a good test case. Yeah, that's, that's definitely, that's definitely the case. I cook a lot. So I just also cooked on Thanksgiving. And, and so for me, it's just like a, another day of cooking. <laughs> uh, Kelly, what was in your stuffing? I actually didn't make any. <clears throat> I know. <clears throat> I know. <laughs> yeah. I, I cooked a sensible amount of food. That's why. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. good. That's good. Yeah. Wait, Kelly, I have a question for you. I, I often ask people this. Um, what is a dumpling? What is a dumpling? What is yeah. a dumpling? If you had to define God. dumpling. Yeah, I know, right? But what is it? it well, it's multiple things. Like, I, I don't just see one thing. Um, I see, like, you know, the steamed buns a little bit. And I see uh, big chunks of, like, biscuit dough and soup. And I see pasta uh, rolled up. Like I, I, all of those things it, are dumplings to me. And yeah. it is difficult when cooking to try to delineate. Yeah. Well, we have, well, we have a friend who is quite insistent on there being only one dumpling and everything else is something has to be called by its, uh, less than generic name. Um, what is, so, well, her dumpling is dough wrapped around a substance and cooked, uh, uh, simmered in water, and then put it, you know, with some sauce or something, or butter and cheese or something. But you know, I agree with you. I think you know, a matzo ball is a dumpling, and there's nothing inside it. You know that. Well, I mean, I, yeah. They all, all of these things. You're listing a bunch of things that all have, I think, a good claim on being called dumplings. Sure. And to me, they illustrate a like convergence or parallel evolution of many different cuisines regarding how are ingredients to be cooked like what is a convenient way to turn these ingredients into a cooked unit for eating <laughs> and um, it happens that um, there are many many ways for people to arrive at something that looks like pasta and that is cooked in a fairly similar way noodles spaghetti pasta whatever it is um, and dumplings, I think, are very similar. I mean, steaming or boiling or frying um, something, an, a mass of stuff usually made by some milling process, like it, it all comes together in a fairly similar way. I mean, we have far more in common than not <laughs> Yeah, across food, I think. I think so, too. I, I think that... Um, you know, regionalisms also get overwritten, you know, that, you know, people in the West eat X or, you know, we, yeah. we eat, you know, it, it happened actually in my lifetime in a general way that people started eating each other's food and that, you know, at, at, when I was growing up, we, well, first of all, we didn't eat out. Restaurant eating was not a thing in the Midwest where I grew up. And you ate in your family and you ate the same four dishes over and over again that your mom could make. And, and that, um, so the eating each other's food, in my experience, happened more in the 60s and 70s in the parts of the world I lived in, which is the Midwest and the East Coast. And that it, it introduced a whole lot of variation and also a lot of aspiration as people wanted to cook those things that other people cooked mm. and go shopping for the ingredients for those. And you wandered into Chinatown or you wandered into the, the Armenian um, area of town or something. Um, so I think that I, I've seen that change a lot, that and also the adoption of foods as your own that might have been attributed to very different peoples, whether that's cultural appropriation or just the joy of cooking all kinds of different things. Um, that's that's a question. Yeah, you um, bring that up when you're talking about the supermarkets. Um, you know, there there has to be somebody there that wants to buy 
these things that we're bringing in, you know, there has to be a population to support that. So yeah, it's all, um, there's just more questions than answers, I think. But isn't that good? But that's okay. Yeah, I'm okay with that. Like I'm fine with that. I, there I think are more the, things than we can even dream of. One of the one of the arts, I think, is in framing the question and figuring out what intellectual tools suit a given question in the world of of, of food studies. So, um, you know, when we start to talk about authenticity, um, my my natural move was to say, well, these are how these different disciplines would try to treat this problem, right? And uh, when it comes to the question of a lot of the questions in food studies are who eats what, when, where, why kinds of questions. And with whom. And with whom. And they have this kind of mechanical quality. Like you can actually, there is an empirical answer and you can kind of figure it out. And it's a, you're sort of looking for the levers that produced a certain state of affairs in the world. Like, this is why there are canned bamboo shoots in a market. Like, as you said, Kelly, there has to be a population that wants to eat that. But um, there are other questions, too, that may um, that, that, that may lead to different kinds of, of, of answers and different kinds of methods. So, you know, my mother is very interested in sensory anthropology in the way you tune your senses to different things. And um, sometimes that leads you to an entirely different set of questions and answers. Um, Something that didn't make it into the book, but that has always fascinated me is um, the idea that um, different peoples, whether defined ethnically or religiously or culturally, smell different. which has been a, like a, a racist trope. The idea that, you know, that they like Jews in the Lower East Side of New York smell of garlic, something like that. Um, and um, the idea here is that sensation itself has a history and that people would think about smell as a way to differentiate different groups of people in different ways than we do now at different times. Yeah, it's also great because it coincides with the introduction of spices to Western Europe um, and the the meanings given to spices, which of course were a tremendous luxury at first. Anyway, um, they they would attach meanings to them, and um, you know people used to think that, for example, spices were imported to hide the taste of rotten meat, which wasn't true at all, because only rich people could afford these smelly spices, and they could also afford fresh meat. So anyway, the smell is is a wonderful thing. And um, also the multiple, you know, I spent some time with chefs in Japan, because I'm doing a work on workers, food workers, and they think about how the food is going to sound to the eater as they crunch it. They think about hearing as one of the taste senses. Uh, of course, seeing, you know, they have this phrase, mede taberu, which means we eat with our eyes. They, so this idea that everything is part of your total experience, if you pay attention. And paying attention is the big lesson. Well, I mean, one, one way to put it might be that different groups at different times make different things of sensation. So... Smell might, food smells might mean a certain thing to us in the context of a mall food court or a Singaporean hawker market, but they might mean something entirely different um, at an ancient Roman banquet, Um, right? So smells take on different significances to different groups at different times. And that's... that's yeah, the um, the Roman orgy, which I once catered, um, which was a, a throwback to an event that was ridiculous. But um, it, it the idea was to um, put into braziers different kinds of aromatic herbs and spices and burn them for the guests to smell bef- before eating and during eating. So these things that are not edible 
uh, were also, or not to be eaten in that moment, were to be part of the sensations of eating. And so that gets very complex, like aromatherapy, I guess. Well, yeah, I mean, and you do point that out in, in the medieval chapter. I'm really grateful that you included that that um, observation that, you know, we we just can't know what these things tasted like. Like there are things that those animals ate that aren't around. Like, I mean, there's, we just won't know that. And we have to kind of make peace with that. Well, we just I have to know that we don't know. Well, there's a funny kind of presentism that I think food encourages. Or another way to put it is that um, if we see a reference to a dish that goes by the same name as a dish we eat today, it's very easy to kind of immortalize our version of the dish and assume that it was just like that back then, to assume that these things are are changeless, whereas in fact, uh, as the, the three of us, and I'm sure all of our listeners know, food changes as much, if not more than anything uh, in, in human history. Um, and we just tend to, maybe a better word for it is to naturalize. We, we tend to naturalize the things with which we are familiar. I remember the first time I tasted peanut butter in Japan. Yeah. And I was a little kid and I was so disappointed because it was like a, a dense sugary paste that had very little of the viscosity of an American peanut butter. And I was like, I just, I just thought this was what peanut butter was. Well, that's, it's, yes, and your sister also wouldn't drink milk in different countries we went to because it wasn't milk to her, you know, whatever, you know, Kelly, you're referring to what do the animals eat, you know, that's, those cows were not eating what our cows ate back here. Hmm. I think this, this is kind of, op this opening up and the fact that we're still asking questions, Kelly, and you're asking questions that don't have answers, means that you know there's always going to be work to do in this field you know whatever we decide to call it whether it's food studies or explorations is there anything in the book that we didn't touch on or talk about or maybe anything else that you couldn't put in the book that you do want to talk about uh that you want to add as as we're getting close to the end here um. I know it's always like it, it immediately breaks everyone's brains. I don't yeah, think anybody yeah, has yeah. ever been asked that question and been able to come <laughs> up with anything. Oh, I, I mean, we have, I think, I think I have a lot of very specific answers. Like I would, I would really, I, I think it would be amazing to have um, a, a chapter, for example, on um, cattle raising in Australia that used that as a kind of a case study to look at the relationship between meat and agriculture and land use. I think it would be really wonderful if we had had more material on, say, Black foodways in the American South. I think it would be fabulous if we had talked even a little bit about Eastern Europe. I mean, so there, there are lots of very specific answers in any book like this of air of things we didn't cover that I think are actually quite important. Sure. Um, and, and other examples of the things we did cover that would extend the discussion, like say, including New Orleans food and the creolization of food and the, using a place like that <laughs> as an example that of, of some of the things we do talk about. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can imagine, it's so easy to imagine writing this book differently. One one idea for reorganization would be instead of a sequence of historical chapters with these interleaving vignettes, it's easy to imagine a book that instead focused on you know nine cities around the world and their food histories, um, you know nine places that we know fairly well and that we could we could say something about. Um, it would be easy to imagine a book that was just vignettes, but some of them much longer. Um, that would dig more into the potential for personal writing to crack open questions. Yeah, I think that's right. In in, in a sense, it's already part memoir. Um, and you know, I I I would I would add some uh, strange meals I cooked for people as a novice 
caterer um, that produced certain reactions in people or I know I would sort of have it an interactive discussion of a meal something like that um but, I mean, but we, I, we have some. I think I think more more discussion of food work that we've done and that other people have yeah. done yeah. would be really interesting um I I've never tried to put pen to paper on the summer I spent as a bus boy and food runner uh, which was actually probably my favorite job in food um and I don't, it's, it's, that's an area of food work that I don't see people writing about a lot. Um, I've seen a couple of books by people who are dishwashers about that experience, but it, that's kind of underwritten too. So there's lots of, there's lots of, of, of there, there's not infinite, but like functionally infinite material. The question is always to, to figure out what kinds of questions arise from it. Yeah. Yeah. And and those questions just keep extending it. That's... Oh. I know, but sadly, we're not at the uh, at the Oxford uh, conference, so <laughs> I can't just go on all day long. Unfortunately, uh, if, <laughs> if you if you ever want if you ever want eating bats explained to you by eccentric people, um, please go there. <laughs> right, I'll, right, I'm going to put it on my bucket list for sure. Yeah, sure. it's great. <laughs> Um, well, thank you so much for your time today and talking about this book. It's, I, yeah, I just have more questions, which is what we want. So, um, thank you yeah. for being such a great interviewer and conversational partner. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for your interest in the book and for taking the time to talk with us today. Really appreciate it.